You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Don't expect me to break out into the song, uh, but that's considered to be one of the top 10 Christmas songs of all time. Uh, originally written back in 1951 by uh, Meredith Wilson, who's a big time, I guess, band leader at that time, uh, wrote that song. It's been redone many, many times. But I'm certain that all of you could probably tell me what the first line is. It says it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Yeah, everywhere you go, implying that leading up to the 25th, there are all kinds of signs and indications that Christmas is approaching. That whether it be decorations that we don't see any other time of year are now present, but the reality is, even though the day hasn't arrived, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. And I want to make the case that I think you can say the same thing when it comes to the kingdom of God. That somehow there are indications to us that that kingdom is present already, and around us even as we speak. And yet in another sense, it certainly awaits a greater future fulfillment. In other words, it's both already and not yet. Uh, so I want to direct your attention to the book of Revelation this morning. Uh, Revelation chapter 21. Uh, we're in this chapter and the preceding one. You're giving a panoramic view of the kingdom of God. Uh, this great mystery that we're considering on this fourth Sunday of Advent. A kingdom that was ordained from eternity past, was foretold by the prophets, and as we'll see, is to be completed ultimately at Christ's return. But in Revelation 21, we just begin simply with looking at what is the evidence there for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Christ, are all interchangeable terms here. So what evidence do we see in this very last book of scriptures, which is wrapping everything together of the evidence of the kingdom of God? Well, notice if you would in verse 2 of chapter 21, you have some indirect references. Because if you've been paying attention as this passage was read, nowhere in this text do you see the word kingdom. Now, there are plenty of other passages we could look at that do have the word kingdom. But there are enough references here that certainly point to a kingdom. And so notice in verse 2, you have mention of a holy city, the New Jerusalem. And typically associate with some kind of kingdom, we think of a region, a territory. Uh, in ancient times, the thought of a city was a very comforting place. Uh, a place of security uh, and activity. Uh, so you have reference to a city which points to ultimately some kind of territory or security. Notice if you would verse 3 and verse 5 both draw attention to the throne and that everything that proceeds in this coming kingdom is coming directly from the throne of heaven, from God himself. And so you really cannot speak of a throne without thinking of a king or a leader 
who presides over a kingdom. But continuing down a little further in the text, notice in verse 6, this title is referenced in the very beginning of Revelation, where it says, He said to me, it is done, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I think most of us are aware of what this title signifies. You have the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, basically saying, I am from A to Z. And whenever we would use a comparison like that, where you state two opposite poles, you're implying that holds true for everything in between. So in other words, in God himself, all things exist and all things are directed to. And so as we begin our series on the Trinity, we realize what's being said here of God is also true of the Son and the Spirit. Alpha and Omega. So all those terms taken together clearly indicate we're referring to a kingdom. A kingdom, a reign and rule where all worship, all attention will be directed to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we can break that down even further and consider the exact use of the word kingdom in the Old Testament. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. And so in the book of Daniel, you find the use of the word kingdom. Uh, you had it in your uh, Advent reading this morning from Psalm 24, uh, the king of glory and his kingdom that will last forever. But you notice in Daniel chapter 7, a book that's addressing a situation that would be overwhelming from one standpoint, uh, you have the most gifted people in Israel have been carted off into Babylon. And from their perspective, it would look like Nebuchadnezzar is the, the king of the world. Uh, tremendously powerful, uh, a very astute ruler. Uh, and yet in light of that context and in that environment, Daniel continues to remind us that there is only one true king and one ultimate kingdom. So notice in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, we read, and this is a, a context that you have the son going before the ancient of days, and it says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so we have glimpses in the use of the word kingdom in the Old Testament to sometimes point to a type of monarchy, a type of rule or dominion that can at times describe an earthly power, but to this extent here is describing the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And if you know some basic history, quickly you'll see the Babylonians as quick as they come onto the scene will be removed by the Medes and the Persians. Uh, a kingdom that looked unstoppable would clearly not meet this description of an everlasting domain, which only fits the kingdom of God. And now to the New Testament, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13 and verses 10 and 11, and then we'll jump over to the Gospel of Luke. But Matthew 13, and let's see how this particular word is used in different ways in the New Testament. 
So in Matthew 13, verses 10 and 11, Jesus, during his ministry, begins at a certain point to focus more and more on the use of parables, uh, an effective teaching tool, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old as well. But in Matthew chapter 13, notice what verses 10 and 11 say. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you but not to them. So the truth that Christ was speaking was related to the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God. And as we see here, transitioning to how that reign and rule should look in the hearts and lives of those who follow him. But then go with me to Luke chapter 22 and verses 28 through 30. So we know that the Old Testament spoke of one who would come and set up an everlasting kingdom. Isaiah speaks quite often of this one. And so there was in the mindset of Jesus' audience that when this promised coming one, the Messiah, would arrive, he would set up some kind of physical reign and kingdom before their eyes. And so you can understand their dismay, their refusal, to acknowledge Christ because they didn't see that happening. But in Luke 22, you have Jesus speaking in verses 28 through 30 uh, to the Pharisees who knew the word of God, whose job it was to enforce, interpret, and explain how the Old Testament applied. But Luke 22, verse 28 begins, and here in reference, excuse me, to his disciples, he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we start to get a feel here for if the word kingdom refers to some kind of reign or rule, and it comes from the father, it's going to be distributed here through the ministry of Christ, then how is this word being used? Because we think of the disciples, they don't look like they've received certainly any material kind of kingdom. Uh, what is this spiritual kingdom, this reign and rule that is being referred to? And so I want us to go back now to Revelation 21 with that groundwork to look at what is the essence of the kingdom of God. Because it clearly is taught in Scripture, it is a reality, not a fantasy. But in Revelation 21, it goes on to explain the essence or nature of this kingdom. What, what does this kingdom look like? What will it look like? And so look once again with me at verse 2, 3, and 5 of Revelation 21. Notice verse 2, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So we have this emphasis, this is a work of God. It's not a work of man. It comes from the throne room of God. It's coming down from heaven. There's been a process of preparation and planning. This has been a part of God's eternal design, this kingdom, and how it would be manifested or unfold. But then go to verse 3. 
He continues, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So we have once again this emphasis of God dwelling and living among his people. And so right away you, you think about, not just in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, it was a way of foreshadowing something much bigger and greater. But then go down to verse 5. Verse 5, it says, He who was seated on the throne, once again, recognizing the sovereignty of God, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I consider for a moment the, the, the audience here. We know that the Apostle John is the writer of the book of Revelation. It's based on a vision that God gives him on the Lord's day. Uh, as you're thinking of that context, you may know John is on the island of Patmos. He's, he's been exiled there. This is not a holiday or Christmas vacation for him. Uh, he has been separated from the churches that he loves, from the believers that he loves. And so to hear this message given and then say these words are trustworthy and true resonates with John needs to hear this message where he is. And those who are going to receive this message from the Lord through John need to hear it where they are. So what do we need to understand about the kingdom of God? Well, the first aspect would simply be the kingdom of God is a present kingdom. That even as we speak now, as these words were given, God was on his throne. There, there's never been a moment where God has been dethroned. Now, at the same time, yes, Satan is active in this world, uh, but God still restrains his activity. As sinful as man is, he is not as sinful as he could be without the restraining power of God. So we mustn't ever forget, when we speak of the kingdom of God and God being on his throne, he has always been on his throne and is presently on his throne. So when we think of the kingdom of heaven right now, it is in some ways an invisible kingdom. Uh, it is in other ways a spiritual kingdom. Uh, many confessions refer to it and help us understand this and say uh, it refers to the present reign and rule of Christ in the hearts of those who love him. So as those who profess faith in Christ, we can say the kingdom of God is in us. And yet God reigns from heaven on his throne. Uh, Turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. And you see Jesus referencing this in his interrogation with Pilate. So Pilate is basically looking at this as here is someone who's in my presence who, who needs me, uh, who is trying to win a favor from me, from what they're being sentenced to. And Jesus, in his words, reverses that concept. He's not there needing anything from Pilate. He is on the throne. God is on the throne. So in John chapter 18, verse 36 and 37, 
in this dialogue going back and forth, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If I were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Imagine the, the surprise, if we could picture Pilate's face here, his surprise indignation when Jesus refers to his kingdom. And Pilate, as a leader, would be thinking, well, I, I can tell you who my soldiers are. I can show you my force. And you can see evidence when I command these things happen. And, and you're telling me you are a king? Clearly, Jesus is recognizing there is a very different definition of a kingdom at this point from an earthly perspective versus Jesus speaking of a present reign and rule right now in the lives and hearts of those who are obedient to him. And so as we look at the panoramic picture in Revelation 21, it's not canceling out what Jesus said here, but it's taking us to the fulfillment of that kingdom. What will that present kingdom look like in the future when it is completed at Christ's return? So go back with me to Revelation chapter 21, and I draw your attention to some just simple key words we see there. Both verses 1 and 2 emphasize a new heaven and a new earth. Now you can debate, will that be completely new in that everything we know presently here is going to be destroyed and then completely new? Will it be uh, a, a refurbishing, a renewal of some of the present elements of creation? But what we don't want to miss is this future kingdom of God is new in the sense of qualitatively new. It's not just a starting over. It is a brand new in quality because sin and death and all the consequences of sin will be done away with. So as we can accurately say, the present kingdom of heaven was inaugurated by Christ through the coming of the Holy Spirit. This future kingdom will be consummated when Jesus Christ returns. And so it will not just be a spiritual kingdom where Christ reigns and rules and submits all things back to the glory of the Father, but it will also be a physical kingdom. It will fill all heaven and earth. And so now it's worth us to look at, well, what's, what's the new part of this? How is this future kingdom very different from the present reign and rule of Christ. And so you notice in verse 1, it says there will be no longer any sea. Uh, there's a number of reasons why this might be. Again, you have an imagery used, uh, but typically in the Bible, the sea is associated with, with, with chaos, uh, with the effects of sin and evil. Uh, it's also true that the sea is at times associated with rebellion, separation, and, and tribulation that God's people go through. So in other words, all of those things associated with the image of the sea would be removed. And you can't help but think, how would that thought have 
played in John's mind as he was separated from the church that he desired to be with and minister to by the sea, where he could see this barrier all around him. And God's saying, one day all of this will be removed. And, and he will dwell in the most intimate way with us because there will be no more sin. So yes, Christ presently does live in us as followers of him. But that communion, that level of intimacy will, will be surpassed when we are in his presence face to face. Notice as we read in verse 3, this emphasis on his dwelling with us. Uh, the word there is used in John 1 again, this to tabernacle, to, to come and reside with us. So in the incarnation, you had a, a glimpse into God coming and living with us, and yet without sin. That's a, a forerunner, a taste of that communion that we have in heaven before God that will be without interruption and without end. We all probably take comfort from verse 4 that when this day comes, uh, all sorrow, all death, all mourning, everything associated with the consequences of sin will be removed, completely eliminated, wiped away. No trace of it. No, no, no memory looking back on things. Uh, sometimes you hear people kind of acting as if, well, those who have died are, are watching us and they, they miss us and things like that. You don't find any precedent for that kind of teaching in Scripture. To, to be in God's presence is to delight fully and completely in Him. So this amazing kingdom that will be ushered in at Christ's return, this future reign will complete what we already have a taste of, in this present reign and rule in Christ in our hearts. But the entrance to this kingdom is plainly set out for us. So you see in verse 8, what might seem to be a very harsh part of this message. It's talking about the glories of the kingdom, and then but. And always, you know, but implies a contrast. What's said here is completely different from the previous part of the blessings. And we mustn't miss the conditions, that there is the rejection of Christ as Savior and Lord. There is evidence of that in these sinful vices that are listed that would exclude one from this eternal kingdom. And so you notice you have a list of eight. They're not in any kind of order of precedence or one is worse than the other. Uh, again, you want to read this list realizing that as Christians, we can struggle against sin, but it shouldn't be a habitual characteristic of our life. Now, all of these seem pretty glaring until you get to the very last one, which is somewhat interesting, and all liars. Uh, and this seems to possibly be a reference not just to that clear case of unbelievers, but what about those people who profess to follow Christ, but in reality, their lives, their doctrine, what they teach completely contradicts it. That they will not be a part of this kingdom. And I think there's always a, a mystery here when we consider this because there will be people that probably when we go to be with the Lord, we will expect to see and we might not see there. And there may be others that we just do not expect 
And yet they have come to saving faith in Christ. So the Apostle John is echoing here those words he wrote earlier in John 3 with the ministry of John the Baptist that, that you simply have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. That this present reign, this future reign that will complete it is only entered through the gift of grace and salvation in Christ. George Whitfield, known for his uh, powerful evangelistic preaching, often drove home this point, you, you have to be born again. Uh, and one time he was pulled aside and, and they kind of said, uh, why do you keep saying that, that you must be born again? And Whitfield simply replied, because you must be born again. It's that clear in Scripture. It's that's the basis of our entrance into this kingdom. But it's always good to consider the mysteries of Christianity, not just from what they say doctrinally and theologically, but what impact should they have on us? You know, are, are these just truths to kind of be studied and then like some of the books in my office, I read them, I look at them, and then I, when I'm done, I close them and I put them back on the shelf. Is that what we do? with the mystery of the kingdom. It's, it's good to look at, it's interesting, and, and we put it back to a further reference point. Well, I think we must consider that for John, for his audience who's receiving this vision, for you and for me, is that this mystery was intended for the improvement of our faith. In other words, it is to have a practical significance in our lives now. And so I, I get basis on, notice in verse, Five, you have the assurance here, I am making everything new. Uh, this is a tense called the prophetic present. It's like the prophetic perfect in the Old Testament where something is stated that you do not see yet, but it is so certain because God says it is done. What a reminder that the reality of the present kingdom, the anticipation of the future kingdom, should in every way bring us present joy and strength in whatever our circumstances are. That when John is told, write this down, it's not just for the benefit of those who will receive this message and they can read it, but here we are thousands of years removed from that and we are reading these very same words and we can look at them on the page, we can go back to them over and over again to strengthen our faith and to provide present joy. That they are trustworthy and true. They are reliable. You can count on this happening because the Alpha and Omega has said it is done. Well, what a relevance now the kingdom of God takes to us. It's not just something we look and say, well, in five years, ten years, whenever, I, I die in Christ, then I'll get to enjoy this. No, it should be a present help to you, an improvement of your faith now. But then notice verse 6 and 7 as well, that it should produce in us a zeal for God and a deeper love for God. Because he speaks of those who are thirsty to drink without cost. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We've talked about this adoption in Christ, this union with Christ. 
What a word of encouragement to John as he's on the island of Patmos, not knowing if he'll ever be able to get off that island and renew his relationship with his brothers and sisters in Christ, that this should encourage him in however long he has left to serve God with zeal and with love. And I'm sure your circumstances at times can be difficult, whether it be you're dealing with physical issues, spiritual issues, but to keep the kingdom of God before you. This will be done. You will inherit all of this. And that word all is, is filled with all of the promises in Scripture. I trust that many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis's allegorical uh, story with Aslan, which is a picture to us of Christ. Well, in his last book in that series, The Last Battle, he talks about everything that has happened to these characters uh, in the book. And he concludes with this paragraph, which I think reminds us, this is what the present kingdom of God looks like. This is what we are moving towards. So in the last battle, he writes this, all their life in this world and all their adventures on Narnia have been only the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before it. What a beautiful picture of what this present kingdom is pointing to and will be when it's fulfilled. One of the great mysteries of Christianity, the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that these words are true because we will not always feel like this is true. We will often be captivated by our circumstances instead of captivated by you. And so may we go back to these promises. May it change how we live now in anticipation of that kingdom that awaits us in Christ Jesus. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen.